0: We're still waiting. Uh, Dan, you go ahead and pray this morning, since I did it last week, and I don't want to get too spiritual. (laughs) 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 Thanks for letting.
1: Uh, Rich and I were getting nervous because of the roadblocks around the church, but you all did you all did so well. So let's open in prayer. Father, you speak to us throughout the world and the people in it. And today we experience roadblocks to our gathering. It's so often true when we look at the world, Father, we try to be active and positive, and yet we feel distress. So often we feel the roadblocks as we look to ourselves and we see our sin and we feel depressed. As we gather today, Lord, we ask for your Holy Spirit, that we might understand your word, your Son, the Logos. As we look to Jesus, that we might find rest. In this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: Amen. Good morning, everybody. Good to see you. Come on in. You're not late. Uh, well, just a, a, a bit of an interesting factoid. Uh, Sitting in the room here today is somebody that studied with me at Malone College in 1995, and uh, it's a miracle that they came back. (laughs) This is Jen Martin, and uh, I'm sorry, Jen Carroll, and uh, anyways, say hi to her. (laughs) Uh, This is an exciting day for me. We get to have a very can't say very unique because my grandmother would yell at me. You can't qualify unique. So this is a unique experience that you have today to hear Zev give this teaching. I'm so excited about that. So let me take three minutes of his time to catch you up on the course a little bit and uh, help you understand where we're going. I want to make sure that everybody gets a syllabus and the handouts. They're up there on the stage. If you don't have a syllabus, I'd like you to have one. Plus, you can go online. Uh, what is it? Uh, cpc.podbean.com. Cpc.podbean.com, and you can download everything in this course, including the overheads and the handouts and all, the whole thing. So please get that, because I showed, I, I got a little diagram here to just kind of catch you up where we're at, and I want you to have this syllabus so that you see where we're going. So we started off with Tolstoy. You remember that? Martin the Cobbler. Did anybody make the connection why we did that? What did we do last week? The five sermons, the five books, the five divar of Jesus' teaching around which Matthew structured his whole gospel. And the last Devar, Matthew 25, was the heart and essence of Tolstoy's story. And what was the heart and essence of Tolstoy's story? What you do to the least of others, you do to me. So, in other words, his ethic eventually evolved into, let's just do that. Let's just treat other people like Jesus. Now, of course, the focus of our course is the Sermon on the Mount, But we wanted to show you that these five books are all linked inherently to this whole uh, concept of what the Sermon on the Mount is trying to teach. So there's a connection there that we wanted you to see. Now, this week, we get to go and see the Sermon on the Mount from a first-century perspective. How uh, the people of Jesus' culture would hear, read, and understand and resonate with what he was saying. So that's awesome. And then next week, we have a fun assignment. Do you remember what you're supposed to do? Yes! You have the Sermon on the Mount in the handout with no cheating uh, headlines or verse divisions or anything, which means that um, I'm sweetly and lovingly challenging you to do something sit down and read this, and actually try to outline it based on its content, not on what somebody else told you the content was. Good grief. What will happen if you do this?
1: You might think about it. You might think about it.
0: <laughs> you might actually... God, in, uh, No, that's wrong, though, because we're not supposed to use our minds, right? The first... And greatest commandment.
2: I am. The, the second <laughs> Then <laughs> You shall have no other gods before me.
0: I'm thinking of the other one. <laughs> you shall have, yeah, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, which you will see today an example of. So, Zev and I will bring our outlines. Are you doing one?
2: Am I doing what? An outline. I don't know. Okay,
0: I'm doing one. Then we'll do it together in class. It's not right or wrong, but what we wanna do is actually tear into the teachings of Jesus and understand the logical connections that he's trying to make. Okay, so having said all of that, there's where we are in the course. Here is Zev to take us back to the first century.
2: Okay. couple of observations before I get started, one, how many of you remember growing up Rocky and Bullwinkle? Do you remember Mr. Peabody and his boy Sherman? Okay. What did Mr. Peabody have that he was always using with Sherman? The Wayback Machine. Okay. I am not Mr. Peabody. And I don't have a Wayback Machine. And uh, I don't know what expectations you had about this presentation. It's very interesting because um, uh, end of last week, um, uh, Cindy Friley texted me saying, do you have a press release for your presentation? And I proceeded to tell her by text, which took some doing to get it condensed down, that when I went on a great introduction to Zen retreat at Zen Mountain Monastery, which is run by a published Zen author, John Daido Luriroshi, one of the things that we were invited to do was to participate in what in the Japanese Zen tradition is called dokusan, your private audience with the abbot. And it was in the form of a question that you had to ask the abbot. And you were told to please formulate your question carefully, so as not to waste the abbot's time. And uh, you know this is sort of like getting your own private koan, you know. So I thought about it, and when my time came in, I bowed and sat down and said, "How do I practice being nobody in particular?" And he immediately responded, "Don't believe your own press releases." So I texted that back to Cindy and said, if I'm not supposed to believe my own press releases, should I even be writing one? Well, she didn't respond to that. I eventually did text her or email her a sort of press release. And uh, she thanked me for that. So uh, the the press release that you probably got was the one that I co-wrote, but I have to honestly warn you, I don't believe a word of it. (laughs) Okay. I can't take you back to first-century Palestine. What I can do is sort of give you an understanding of just how much that would change your perception. Okay. Think for a moment that you are no longer a turn-of-the-21st-century American, relatively affluent, and a speaker of American English. I know the English think it's a separate language, but... um, And that you are, you know, in a comfortable society where the religion you profess is fully accepted, and you are living in an independent country. And now take yourself back to a situation where you are a first-century tribal Semite, speaking not American English, but Aramaic, which belongs to a completely separate language family, and that your religion is currently going through a major period of division and conflict, largely also conditioned by the fact that your country is under the brutal military occupation of a pagan foreign power, which is a reality you have to deal with literally every single day and that you are longing for the coming of a better world. Deeply longing for it. Okay, That can give you an idea of some of the differences that have to be done. But especially, I want to highlight before I get started, because I am going to be talking in some ways about certain technical terms, about language. One of the things that I have learned and Function by a great deal is a hypothesis called the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis, after the two people, mentor and disciple, Edward Sapir and Benjamin Lee Whorf, who basically presented it. It's got two key propositions. Proposition one: We cannot think. and I'm going to have to erase the two and move that farther down. We cannot think without language. Having developed as a species this thing called language, we have become totally dependent on it, which is why, by the way, it's called dis cursive thinking because discursive thinking is the discourse that we carry on in our heads all the time okay and that's how we think and the second hypothesis part of the hypothesis is this the structure of our Language strongly conditions the structure of our experience. In other words, the way we experience reality and respond to it is in large measure a function of the structure of our language. And that's why one of the things I want to do is to sort of begin to give you an understanding of just how different the worldview of a first-century Palestinian Aramaic-speaking Jew would have been from a turn-of-the-21st-century English-speaking American. Because American English, like Greek, which was also spoken in, in, in that area in the eastern Mediterranean basin, is an Indo-European language. And one of the things that Indo-European languages have that Semitic languages do not have, and this is crucial, is a present tense of the verb to be. In Semitic languages, there is no present tense of the verb to be. Nothing is anything, because is is not a word that exists. And that's a fascinating thing to think about. And what that also means is that by and large, if you're a Semitic language speaker, your language does not have a subject predicate structure, strictly speaking. Secondly, English in particular is the most heavy noun endowed language in human history. We've got more nouns in the English language than any language that has ever occurred. Okay. The noun is the absolute key part of speech for us. Okay. How many of you remember diagramming sentences? Okay. What's the first thing you have to put into the diagram of the sentence? The subject. What part of speech is the subject? Always. It's a noun. That's what you're talking about. And because that's the key subject, how do you perceive reality as a user of English? you perceive reality as made up of a vast multiplicity of things. A vast multiplicity of things with properties. Now, Semitic languages are totally different, because in Semitic languages, everything is based not on nouns, but on verbs. And I think one of the best illustrations of this, uh, one of the modern sort of uh, Kabbalists, um, Cooper, I think his name is, wrote a book called God is a Verb. God is a verb, not a noun. Okay? Everything is based on verbs. And verbs have not only complex tense structures, which were simplified for modern Hebrew, by the way. But highly complex tense structures, but also an immensely complex set of voice structures, what are called in Hebrew binyanim, buildings, literally. So you have verbs that are active, verbs that are intensive, verbs that are passive, two different kinds of passive verbs, pu'al and huf'al. You have causative constructions. You have reflexive constructions. And in each of these, you have a complete conjugation and tense structure. So how would you tend to perceive reality if you spoke a Semitic language? Not as made up of things, but as made up of events, actions, and processes. Especially events and actions. Nothing is. Everything is happening. Yeah? Because that works in Greek, which is an Indo-European language. But that's not what God says in Hebrew. In Exodus, it says eheye asher eheye, I will be as I will be. In other words, you want to try to track me down by giving me a name? It's as effective as saying when Moses says, what is your name? My name is namelessness. That's what it really means, not I am. Now the fact of the matter is, what this really should do, is the next time you look at the Gospel of John, you're going to see all these I am statements, right? That's not what Jesus said, because he couldn't say I am in Aramaic. What he said in Aramaic is inana which is an intensive form of Ana, I with no verb. Okay? Inana. And inana is probably the Aramaic equivalent of the Hebrew anochi. Now, this is a little bit aside but I really want you to get this because this is kind of a good way of looking at How you have to change your perception. You really want to understand the Judaic perspective on these things. When Jesus saw Nathanael coming, what did he say to him in the Gospel of John? Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom is no guile. And Nathanael says, Well, how did you know me? He says, Well, before Philip called you, I saw you under the fig tree. He says, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. He said, oh, you say that because I say I saw you under the fig tree? By the way, what does it mean, sitting under the fig tree? And every man neath his vine and fig tree shall dwell in peace and unafraid. This is an Israelite, unlike Israel, Jacob, who has no guile. You shall see the the angels of God ascending and descending on Barnasha, the son of man. What does that evoke? What is Jesus evoking? What vision? What? Jacob's ladder. Jacob is fleeing from his brother. He comes to a place called beth otherwise the house of God. He takes a rock for a pillow, rough conditions, and he goes to sleep and he has a dream. And what's fascinating is, you've also got to remember that in Hebrew, there's no neuter gender. So it isn't say, and behold a ladder with its foot on the earth and its head in heaven. But behold a ladder with his foot on the earth and his head in the heavens and the angels of God ascending and descending on him. I learned a very valuable thing about dreams from an analytical psychologist, a follower of C.G. Jung. Jung had two important rules for understanding dreams. Rule number one, everything in your dream has meaning. Rule number two, everything in your dream is you. So who's the ladder? Jacob himself is the ladder. The angels of God are ascending and descending on him. And when he wakes up, what does he say? How terrible is this place? Anybody know what comes next? It's usually translated, the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. Well, the only problem is there's no such thing as it in Hebrew. Okay. And what's interesting is if that's all that was meant then there's a word there that's totally unnecessary. The Lord is in this place, the Anohi Lo Yadati. Okay? Lo Yadati by itself means, I didn't know that. Or I didn't know it. The word anochi is totally unfam- unnecessary. So what does that mean? The word anochi there is not the subject of the sentence. It's the object. I did not know I. Oh, I did not know I? Who else was in Jacob's dream? God? I did not know Anohi. But Anohi means I. In fact, it is the opening word of the Decalogue. Now, if you're thinking Jewishly, you do what is called a Gezerah Shavah, an equality of when a word is used in two different passages, those are saying essentially the same thing. So it is, I did not know God as Anochi. But also, I did not know I. So what is his real experience there? I did not know that ultimately God and I are not two. I did not know that God and I are not two. Now, don't jump immediately to one. Okay, because what it is, you know... I remember one of my favorite sayings of another Zen master, Shunryu Suzuki, who once said, this is the most important teaching. Not two and not one. Now think about that for a week. Okay. Now, the reason I'm... boy, did I digress. I'm not going to get through my material this way. The most important thing to keep in mind is you're dealing with a different worldview which is conditioned by a totally different set of words and a different structure of language. So what you have to realize is that when you approach the Sermon on the Mount and try to understand it with something like Semitic eyes, what you have to ask is not, what is this? Or even, what is Jesus saying? It's, how is he speaking and how is that heard? How was he speaking, and how was that heard? All right? Now it's time to dig in to the Sermon on the Mount, and I'm obviously not going to get through the whole thing. I just had a few choice. This is your introductory lesson in Aramaic. Okay. First of all, I want you to listen. Believe it or not, there's an app for this too. No, wait, 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 wait. I want you to listen to how the Beatitudes, which, by the way, we will soon rename, okay, sound in Aramaic. Tube hun le miskanibaruh the Dilhunhi Malkuta Dashmaya. Tube hun Lawile Dihinun Netbayun. Tubehun Lema Kike dihinun nertun ara. Tubehun Le Lane De Kafn Watain Le Kenuta Dihinun Nisbun. Okay. Now, I know that you really weren't getting a great deal out of that. But what's the word that starts absolutely every one of those? It's the word tubwehun, which you have translated in your Bibles as blessed. But is that really what tubwehun means? Okay. The basic core word in tubwehun is the word Tube, tube, okay, and tube also can be vocalized as tov. Anybody know what tov means in Hebrew? What? Good. Yeah, right. I'm sure you speak Hebrew. I thought she would have spoken German. (laughs) Good luck. All right. Tuv. But tuv also can be used in Hebrew as is. As when you wish someone kol tuv. Kol tuv. Which means all wealth. All goodness. All good fortune. Okay. Tuv. It means good fortune. Not just goodness in any ethical sense, but good fortune. Good fortune. And therefore, there's another Hebrew word that is very similar, which is the word osher. And osher means not just wealth, but abundance, richness, from which we get a very important Hebrew word that they would have used twice a day, every day, Ash ashrei. ashrei. You should have a handout on there that says, the Ashrei. Okay. The important thing about the Ashrei is that this was a mandatory part of Jewish worship twice a day, in the morning and in the afternoon. You always recited this psalm. But it's not just one psalm. Most of it is Psalm 145. But a prefix was added of two verses, One from Psalm 84, and one from Psalm 144, and by the way, the addition from Psalm 144 is the last verse of the preceding psalm. So why would they add that, among other things, to Psalm 145? Stop numbering. Stop separating. This is all part of a continuous praise. And the best way, and the way that's usually translated and read is Happy are those who dwell in your house. Ashrei Yoshvei Veitecha. Old Yehalleluha Sela. They will ever be singing your praises. Ashrei Ha'am Shekachallah. Happy are the people whose portion is thus. I forgot to correct that, blessed, it should be happy. So cross out the word blessed and put in happy. You could also cross out happy and put in fortunate. How very fortunate are those who dwell in your house. How very fortunate are those people to whom such blessings fall. How fortunate are the people whose God is Adonai. Okay? How very fortunate. So this is the first word. You gotta imagine now. Okay, Jesus went up on the mountain. He called his disciples. They came to him. He's got his disciples around him. He's got crowds around him. And the first thing he says is Ashrei. Tubuhun. Ashrei. How fortunate! Then comes the next two words, miskene baruch, miskene baruch. How would that be translated in your Bibles? Poor in spirit, right? Well, a miskene, you know what a miskene is? Have you ever heard how it is that you get to qualify as a composer of country music? Your wife and your girlfriend both have to leave you. You lose your job. You, they, take your, they, they take your farm, they take your house, they take your car, and your dog dies. Now, imagine coming to me and you tell me that whole story and I say to you, you poor soul. That's what a misgain is. A Miscane is a poor, not in the sense of destitute, that's another word that we'll look at in a second. A miscain is a singularly unfortunate person who is going through a period of deep affliction. One of the interesting things is, uh, you've probably heard this word. I heard it from my, uh, really heard it a lot, when I go to visit my stepsons and family in West Virginia, their grandfather, uh, he has a five letter word that he always uses in prayer sick and afflicted. It always comes out as one word, sick and afflicted. Okay. Tubeun Lemiskane Baruch. How fortunate are the singularly unfortunate the poor souls. How happy are those afflicted in spirit. Now, these are the first words out of Jesus' mouth. And you're listening to them. Do you agree? What's the point? This is verbal shock and awe. First century style he's trying to wake people up by saying everything that you have valued, everything that you consider of value, forget about it. And whatever you have devalued, whatever you're most trying to avoid in life, that's where you'll find the kingdom of heaven. Okay in misfortune, in suffering. Going down to the third beatitude, which is so badly translated as blessed are the meek, and most people think, meek, gentle Jesus, meek and mild, and I'm supposed to be meek. It doesn't mean weak and mealy-mouthed. Moses was described as the most humble anav man. That's the word, anavim. In Hebrew, anav. Anav. Okay? And what does anav mean? Well, on one hand, it does mean poor. It means totally destitute. It means totally destitute. And it means um, humble to a high degree. Okay, now, let's see if I can get to this. <laughs> uh, no. OK, what I want you to do is turn, do, do, how many people here have Bibles? Do you have Bibles? Okay, I want you to turn to Psalm 37. The only problem with a Kindle is trying to get to the places you bookmark. Psalm thirty seven. Okay. And I want you, in particular, to look at verses 10 and 11 of Psalm 37. Anybody want to read it? Anybody got it yet? Okay. The weak, the meek, excuse me, will inherit the earth. Uh, Where does... It's that same word, anavim yirshu aretz. The anavim will inherit the earth. Okay, which is properly understood, not the meek shall inherit the earth, but the destitute will inherit the earth. And then I want you to look back at verse 9. What does it say there? Anybody? Oh! The evil people will be cut off, but those who wait on the Lord will inherit the earth, will inherit the land. So, who are the Anavim? Who are the destitute here? What? The people, why are they trusting in God? Why do destitute people trust on in and wait upon God? That's it. He's their sole resource that they have left. Okay. And these are the people that Jesus are saying are most fortunate. How fortunate are the destitute who know they have absolutely nothing and no resource except God. They will inherit the land. And by the way, inherit the land here? It's not just talking about the earth in general terms. It's talking about the land that these indentured servants, sharecroppers, and tenant farmers are working their tails off on for, for, an end, for an absentee landlord when that land belonged to their ancestors. Okay, that's who Jesus is saying is fortunate and happy. One more in the middle, I don't have it up here, but that's quickly amendable. Tuwe hun le amivile. That's the wrong let's try this one. Those who mourn. Okay. Happy are those who mourn. Now, I really think we got to get down to earth here. Because who are Avelim? Who are those who mourn? They're people who have just lost a near and dear relative. Who are in deep and profound grief. In fact, under Jewish law, if you have lost an immediate relative between the time of their death and the time of the funeral, you are completely exempt from the observance of all positive commandments in the Torah. Why? Because you cannot possibly observe them with joy. That's the level of grief we're talking about. In other words, what are we talking about here? Everything that the world devalues, everything that the world seeks to avoid, everything that your culture has told you is good and important and your birthright, you've got to reverse all those values, totally reverse them. Okay? And Luke drives the point home even more forcefully. If I can get there. Hello, Luke. Come in, Luke. Yes. Happy are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Happy are you who hunger now, you shall be satisfied. Happy are you who weep now, you shall laugh. Happy are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich! And by the way, the word there is hoi, which is more than just a kind of a Yiddish "oy." It's a language of cursing. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe for to you when all people speak well of you. For so their fathers did to the false prophets. Anybody comfortable? Hoy? Keep forgetting. There's one black pen that works. Hoy OK. Hoy. Yeah. In other words, this is deeply paradoxical logic and countercultural wisdom. OK? It is a reversal of conventional values. And this is Jesus' opening gambit in his inaugural sermon. In other words, imagine, if you will, you have a brand-new pastor. Okay? Brand-new pastor comes to the congregation. And, by the way, I have four other biblical verses for uh, the first part of a pastor's career. During the search process, you ask him, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Second year, it's blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Third year, it's by what authority do you do these things? And then the fourth year, it's crucify him, crucify him. All right. Imagine a brand new pastor getting up and saying, absolutely everything you value has to be debunked. And everything you disvalue, that's what God wants you to value. How popular do you think that would be? That's what Jesus was preaching. That's what Jesus was preaching. Now, I'm not going to get through all of the stuff that I have laid out, but I did want to get to another thing, which is another section, what is sometimes called the antitheses, but which the biblical scholar and rabbi Pinchas Lapid Called Hypertheses. Okay. Okay. Bye bye. And right now we're in Chapter Five of Matthew, and I just want to read, uh, want people to read a few verses for us, okay? First of all, in chapter 5, would someone please read verses 21 and 22?
0: A, friend, a fool, you will be taken to court. And if you say that someone is worthless, you will be in danger of the fires of hell. Goes on uh, on 23, 23.
2: No. Okay. Just 21 and, Okay. Okay, you get the idea? Don't commit murder is what you were told in the past. Don't even be angry is what Jesus is saying. Now, 27 to 28.
0: You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery in her, with her in his heart.
2: Mm. Everybody remember when, when Jimmy Carter talked about that? Okay. 33 through 35.
0: Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but keep the oaths you have made to the Lord. But I tell you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. Simply let your yes be yes and your no be no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one.
2: Okay. Verses 38 to 39.
0: You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous.
2: Okay. Is there a pattern emerging here? What's the pattern that is emerging here? You've heard that it was said, do not commit murder. I tell you, don't even be angry. What? Well, actually, you're, you're very close. And it's a very important concept in rabbinic Judaism. It's called lifnim mishurat hadin. Literally, within the furrows of the law. Or beyond the furrows of the law. Okay. Now, we've got a farmer here, right? Do any plowing? Nope. You don't plow. Absolutely not. So you don't have any furrows to worry about. Absolutely not. Okay. But if you did, what they're saying is beyond plowing, there is a deeper, deeper thing in that soil, and you have to go beyond the furrows. Okay. Which is why they don't plow. Okay. In other words, above and beyond the letter of the law. But there is something else at stake. What is the difference between murder and hatred? Action versus what? It's internal. Okay. What's the difference between committing adultery and just looking at a woman lustfully? Action versus thinking about it. Okay. This is one of the key heated debates in Judaism at the time of Jesus. Is the intention to commit sin tantamount to the commission of the sin in deed? is the intention equivalent to the deed. Now, we're two schools of thought. In the generation or two before Jesus, two of the greatest sages of Israel lived, Hillel and Shammai. They are both revered. Hillel is the more popular of the two because he tended to be the more humane, open, hospitable, generous, spirited. Uh, Shammai tended to be much stricter. In fact, he always carried with him a measuring rod which he would use on those he felt did not measure up to his standards. Okay. He would drive them away. Okay. Now, they each founded a school and the debate between Beit Hillel and Beit Shammai, the house of Hillel and the house of Shammai, was very intense. And Guess what issue was one of the key subjects of debate? Is the intention to sin, even if you're prevented from doing so, tantamount to having committed the sin or not? Beit Hillel said, no, it's not. Beit Shammai said, yes, it is. Okay. Beit Hillel said, no. Beit Shammai said yes. Okay. And what's interesting in his great two-volume work on the Pharisees, Louis Finkelstein pointed out something. The Pharisees were not really a very strong party in Galilee at the time of Jesus. And what Pharisaic presence there was tended to be of guess which school was stronger. Beit Shammai. Now, how did they reconcile all the conflicts? Because there were many conflicts between Beit Hillel and Beit Shammai. They said, with certain specific assumptions, in this world, be Olam Hazeh, in the world we're living in, the halacha, the walk, goes according to Beit, Shammai, Beit Hillel. And that's good news. Okay? But in the world to come, in the olam haba, the halakha, the law, will be according to Beit Shammai. Now, which side of the debate is Jesus coming down on? He's coming down on the side of Beit Shammai. It's not enough to simply say, I have not committed a sin. You can't even have the intention or the thought thought of doing so. Okay. Because why? What is... Th- yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, take that and translate it into first century Jewish Semitic terms. <laughs> the more you're in tune with God or the more you're in tune with which time period? Olam Hazeh or Olam Habah? This world or the world to come? you got to be in tune with the world to come. Why? What is Jesus saying to people? More than just be in tune with the world to come. What's he saying about the world to come? It's here! It's here! Now! I am telling you the world to come is here! Yeah? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, that was a wonderful... That was on Nova this last week. Okay, on Nova Wonders. If you haven't seen that episode, it, it, it definitely behooves you. We're not as special as we think. I hate to tell you. Okay. Now, to put it in deeper context to show you, number one, what Jesus is getting at here, and why this is really nothing new, I want you to turn to 1 Samuel 16, verses 10 to 14. And let me set the scene for you, because we don't want to read through this whole passage. Samuel has just gotten, in some ways, the toughest news any prophet has ever had to carry out. God has said, you know that guy Saul you really loved and that you anointed as king? Guess what? I want you to undo everything you've accomplished. And no wonder Samuel was upset, and God says, Okay, come on. Get up off your rear, quit pining and poor meing. I've got a job for you now. I want you to go to Jesse the Bethlehemite, and I want you to anoint one of his sons to be king over Israel. Okay. To anoint Limashoach, someone to be king over Israel. Now, would someone please read eighteen Deuter? Uh, no, no, that's not Deuteronomy. I'm not in Deuteronomy. I'm in First uh, Samuel 16, 1 Well, we're going to do verses six through seven.
0: When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is now before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord does not see as mortal sees. They look on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart.
2: Oh, The Lord looks on your heart especially when what is taking place? The anointing of the Messiah. So what is Jesus saying in these hypertheses? He's saying olam haba and the days of the Messiah are here. And that means God is not just looking at your actions, God is looking at your heart. Now, by this time, you probably are doing a little bit of squirming. It reminds me of something when I was um, once on tour in England, and I happened to go to York Cathedral, York Minster, and hear the Reverend Canon Raymond Hockley give a sermon in which he had one of the greatest one-liners I will ever, ever remember. If you can live comfortably with the words of Jesus, you haven't really heard them. If you can live comfortably with the words of Jesus, you haven't really heard them. But I want to throw in one good piece of very good news for you. Because there's a passage of the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus throws in here talking to these crowds in the middle. Jesus said something to the crowd about themselves. What did he say? You are the light of the world. You are the light of the world. What did he say in the Gospel of John? I am the light of the world. Jesus was saying to them, this is not something that is so far outside of you. It's just been deeply buried. Go deep within yourselves, and you'll discover that same light within you. Why? Because I'm here. Because I'm here. Okay. The problem is it's like a uh, poster I once saw had a beautiful luna moth on it and the caption was, you can fly but that cocoon has got to go. Okay. We can fly. But that cocoon, and what's the cocoon? Everything our culture has taught us to value. Everything our society has taught us is important. Everything our world says is good. That's the cocoon, it's gotta go. It's gotta go. And you've gotta completely take a new look at reality You'll find it buried in your heart, but you'll also find it buried, not so buried, in what I'm saying to you right now. Everything you've despised, everything you've disvalued, that's where you'll find the kingdom. Okay? Questions? Comments? Have I totally overwhelmed you? Yeah?
1: all those things that Christ said we need to do
2: well that's why I ended with you are the light of the world okay how many people here have accepted Christ if you've accepted Christ where is Christ living right now in your heart who else with Christ is dwelling there the Father and the Holy Spirit what do you mean you can't do that? You've got all the resources of the Holy Trinity dwelling within your heart. What means do you what do you think it means? You can't. I can't. Oh gee, I'm just poor me. I couldn't do that. Well, fine. Get yourself out of the way. And let God do it within you. And through you, yes.
0: Former lectures. Should we rewrite our Bible in terms of Aramaic literature? Because what I'm seeing, hearing from you, is we're using nouns when we should be using verbs, and hence we distort the meaning.
2: Well, the difficulty is, you might actually have to learn Aramaic and read it in Aramaic to do that. Okay. Okay, hold on. Something like that. All right. In that case, that leads me to one of my favorite passages in Philippians. Okay, Paul is writing, it's, it's arguable that the church in Philippi was Paul's very favorite church that he founded. In some ways, the letter to the Philippians is the most tender of all Paul's writings, which is saying a lot. Um, starting, this is in uh, chapter 3, starting at verse 4, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, Of, uh, of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as dung. Dung. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Not that I have already attained this, or I'm already perfect, I'm skipping a verse here, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus had made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do. Please listen to these words. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Forget what lies behind. Press on. Press
1: on. Thank you. I'm sure we all look forward to next week. We're getting close to uh, worship. We hope that you will stay in worship with us. Don't forget this week's assignment, homework assignment from Dr. Guy is to outline without cheater headlines. Make your own as the Holy Spirit would guide you. Have a blessed week.